it's okay to say this, right? There's a lot of long-term joy to being a parent, but the daily job of it, the mundane feeding your kids and driving them around and disciplining them, there's not always a lot of pleasure in that. Which is why whenever I've talked to Elna Baker about her parents, Elna works here at the radio show, whenever Elna talks about her parents, I've always been so impressed at the happy originality of some of their parenting moves, like the ingenuity that her dad brought to task that no parent enjoys. For instance, let's say he would discover that one of the kids had broken something or eaten a piece of cake that nobody was supposed to touch. He would gather the kids together. So with five kids he would ask all of us which one of us had done it, and we would all lie. And so his way of determining who really did it was he would say, line up tallest to shortest. He would always make us line up tallest to shortest. I don't know. I think he saw Sound of Music, and if you have five kids, why not? Yeah. Uh, So we would line up against the wall, and he said, I'm going to do the hot knife. And what he would do is he would take out like a, a butter knife, and he would hold... a a match or a lighter underneath it and uh, he would say stick out your tongues and so if you're the liar it'll burn your tongue is what was explained to us you're nervous and all the saliva on your tongue will dry up but if you're telling the truth then you'll have enough moisture on your tongue and it won't burn okay of course that's ridiculous what was really happening was He wouldn't hold the flame close enough to the knife to heat it up at all. So the knife wasn't hot, and then he would put the knife on the tongue of his oldest daughter. And so she would be the first, and by the time he went to move on to me, the second child, one of us would confess. (laughs) (laughs) One of us would be like, I did it, I couldn't. I'm so sorry. So Anna's dad definitely tried to do the right thing as a parent, but he didn't mind entertaining himself in the process. And occasionally, he would ad hoc his way to moves that had a secret kind of long-term genius to them that took years to pay off. Like, for example, the day Elna hit her sister on the head with a broom. That day began with Elna's parents sending all five kids out to clean up the garage, which her parents would do now and then. I think we thought we were doing real cleaning, but mostly they just wanted to spend some alone time with the kids not in the house. They would make up either outdoor chores or the garage. Elna's little sister, Julia, found a pair of skates in the garage, and she was just skating around, which annoyed Elna, who was really trying to work and clean the garage. Elna was nine. Julia was five. Elna told Julia to get to work. Elna was ignored, which in her mind was not how things were supposed to go between her and her little sister. And she got so mad that she took this broom, and it was one of those big industrial brooms with the big, heavy, wide tops, and she bashed Julia with it, bashed her in the head. Blood pours down Julia's face. Elna suddenly realizes, like, oh, my God, this is serious. What did I do? Like a str- – wasn't like a line. It was like a stream of blood came running down her head. And I genuinely – like I genuinely thought I had maybe accidentally killed my sister. Julia runs to their dad who administers first aid. And I remember just w- watching from the corner of the bathroom, like just – towels of blood from the top of her head. Once the bleeding stops and Julia is bandaged up, Elna's dad comes out into the hallway. He asks Elna, what happened? Elna knows how much trouble she would be in if she admitted the truth, so she lies. She says it was an accident. The broom slipped. I remember him saying, are you sure that's what happened? Oh. 
And I said yes. Julia, of course, had told him what really happened, that Elna walloped her intentionally. And now Elna's dad was in the annoying situation that parents find themselves in now and then. One child says it happened one way, one says the opposite. Then he gets an idea. So he brought everyone in. We all, you know, sat on my parents' bed. And he proceeded to conduct a family trial where each child had to give their testimony of the events in the garage. And he videotaped this. Yes. That's right. There's video of this. They had just gotten their first video camera, and her dad thought, oh, maybe this is the kind of thing you use this for. Or who knows? Maybe he just thought the camera added gravitas to the proceedings. We were cleaning it outside, and I was bending the walls. Okay, so there's a shot here of, of your little sister. She looks like she's been crying, and she's about to burst into tears more any second. Like, her eyes are big and wide and watery. Her hair is wet from the blood, and she has a bandage in the center of her head. The bandage is like a comic prop. It's just a band-aid, a regular band-aid, like stuck to her hair. And then Elma holded the handle up high, and then she, and then it went down. So was it Elma's fault? Yeah. She did it on purpose? Yeah. Okay, Elma, what's your story? I just told you. All right, and I just want to describe the way you look in this. First of all, you have a huge smile on your face. Yeah. I'm trying to play it super casual. I asked Julia to come and help me get all the stuff out of the thingamajigger. And she accidentally got hit with the groom. I'm just going to note that you never meet your dad's eye. You never look up at the camera. You're totally avoiding everyone's gaze. And... She started crying and went over by the car and I said, it's all right, you're going to be okay. And I hugged her and I looked at her head and I took her inside and Dad fixed her up. Elna's dad pulls the other kids as witnesses. Elna's older sister didn't actually see anything, but concludes from the testimony that Elna probably did not mean to hit Julia so hard, but probably did hit her, which actually seems like the truth of the situation. Elna's dad turns back to Elna after each bit of testimony, and Elna's voice gets higher and higher as she holds on to her eye. The boom actually slipped and actually hit her on the head, and he didn't do that on purpose. Can I just say, if there are any little kids listening to the program today, seriously, learn from this. Listen to how high Elna's voice gets when she says, no, I didn't. Do you believe she did it on purpose? Dad moves into the sentencing part of the trial, asks Julia what punishment would be fair. Julia thinks spanking. And it feels like that is where this is headed. Elna's dad turns to her mom to administer the punishment. And then her mom just turns everything upside down when she says, I'm not convinced that it was on purpose. Oh, you're not? No, because if you think about it. She says the way Elna was holding the broom, it really could have been an accident. It's stupid to hold a broom with the heavy part in the air, she says. So the only thing Elna's guilty of uh, is stupidity? Yeah. Elna, what do you think of that? It pans from my mom to me, and you see that I've just taken in that I might get off, and I have this, I go from this moment of where I was just almost crying, and I have this really mischievous smile on my face, and I say, I guess I'm stupid. (laughs) 
And with that, she gets off. No spanking, no consequences. And then Anna says, a funny thing happened. It just stuck with her. Wouldn't go away. I thought about it way more than if I'd just been spanked. You know, I sort of carried the guilt of this for most of my childhood. Like in church when they would talk about lying or sin, this is the thing I would hold on to and relive because it was the worst thing I'd ever done. And then also feeling so much worse because I'd then lied about it and gotten away with it. So Did I, you also worry that like after you died, that was going to keep you out of heaven? Yeah, I did. Like I thought a part of me was evil because I was capable of doing it. Of doing it, of lying, she means. Of tricking her parents. It was a scheming, selfish part of her that seemed worse than just hitting her sister. And I was afraid of that part of me because I got away with it. And and then do you think it kept you from hitting her more? Yeah, I never hit her again. I would want to hit her. I would like clench my fist and make this face. Uh, but I, I never hit her. Not that she stopped being mean. She was still so mean to her sister. She told Julia she was stupid. She said mean things in front of her friends. She trained the baby in the family, Jill, to start crying if Julia ever picked her up. But Elna grew up remembering the trial. She did not remember it was videotaped, though. Then, nearly 20 years after the event, her brother found the video in some old boxes, and they popped it in, and they watched it together, you know, as a family with her parents and everybody. And to Ona's surprise, okay, she thought, back when she was nine, she thought she was like a criminal mastermind or something to put this lie over on both of her parents. And you watch it now as an adult, and I, I just think watching me, how could you possibly believe me? I'm so obviously lying. Obviously, I'm guilty. And I say to my dad, how on earth did you not think that I was guilty? And his response was, I knew you were guilty the second you walked in the house. I knew that she did it. You could just see her eyes just shifting back and forth. So you knew, or I knew, you know, she's a little liar. This, of course, is Elna's dad, Gary Baker. He told me that after she lied to him at the very beginning, he staged the trial, expecting that she would cave. She would do the right thing. She would tell the truth. And then she didn't. Her mom, by the way, told me she also was not convinced by Elna. She tried to push the idea that it was an accident for Julia's sake, so Julia wouldn't be so scared of Elna going forward. But once she raised the possibility of not punishing Elna, her dad grabbed at the idea and just made a judgment on the fly that that would be a more effective punishment for Elna, given Elna's personality. I decided that she's going to have to live with this. She knows that she did it. She knows that she hurt her little sister. She knows the truth. And so she's going to live with that for the rest of her life. And you thought that would be better than just spanking her? Well, because the spanking would be just a temporary thing, you know, a little, little smack on the behind. Obviously, it worked. Her regret over that whole incident, like she still feels it. And, you know, lots of other regret about Julia also. Like, not long ago, Julia had a baby, and Elna and she are close now, and Elna says she's spent 15 years apologizing to Julia. And she says Julia's baby looks just like how Julia looked as a baby. And I would hold the baby and look at her, and she's so beautiful and so delicate, but it made me remember holding and seeing Julia when she was a baby and how much I hated Julia as a baby. Like, I hated that baby. And in my mind, I thought, like, the feeling's mutual. Like, I thought the baby hated me, 
and I hated the like we just never got along me and that baby it's obvious it's a baby the baby had no opinion about anything so it wasn't just the things that Anna did to Julia that were painful to think about it was also you know like what does this say about me that I felt this way about her and that I did this to her and how much have I changed and, you know, Julia's moved on and the rest of the family's moved on. You know, they joke about how Elna used to treat Julia. Like, recently, Julia found an old workbook that she did back when she was a brownie in Girl Scouts, back in third grade. And there's this one page. And, you know, the top of the page says, I wonder, and then I wonder why, I wonder who, I wonder when, and, and you have to fill in the blanks. These are very general questions. Okay, yeah. And this is what Julia says. I wonder why Elna is so mean to me. I wonder if anyone likes me. I wonder whether my sister loves me. I wonder how come Elna doesn't like me. I wonder where I could be happy. You were awful. I was awful. I like, and she read it, the whole family, everyone was laughing. Everyone thought it was really funny. Uh, but I actually had to leave the room. I just felt really bad. And I still feel really bad about it. Some regrets just never go away, you know? People tell us that they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves. And we still know, like, we did wrong. Like, we hurt somebody. Like, it was real. And that feeling, it can immobilize you. If you're lucky, it teaches you something that you take into other situations. But I think often it's just like this this pebble in your shoe that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down, really. It just, it just hurts. It just hurts in this way that does not stop hurting. And today on our radio show, it is all about regret. We're taking the title of today's episode from an old Frank Sinatra song. Regrets, I've had a few. This, of course, is from the song My Way. It's a song, I should say, I have never liked, except for that one line. No matter who sings that line, Aretha Franklin, Pavarotti, that line always stands out in this bombastic, ridiculous song as the one sincere thought in the song, though My Way is such a crap song that the line right after, Regrets I Have a Few, basically obliterates any sincere feeling of regret. It it kills the one sincere moment in the song. But then again, too few to mention. Oh, really? Too few to mention? Not me, buddy. Not most people. If you don't have regrets, it means you haven't screwed up. It means you haven't had your heart broken. It means you haven't been bloodied. It means you haven't failed. You haven't failed. Like, why even live? Like, why even live a life? Today on our show, we live a life that's full. We travel each and every byway. At least each and every byway that is full of regret. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Much more than this, I did it. Act one, tattoos and memories and dead skin on trial. So if you're going to do a regret show, why not start with a classic, right? A classic regret. This uh, story is about a tattoo that a guy decided he was not happy with anymore. 
If you're listening to our program on the podcast or on the internet, I just want to give you a heads up. There's cursing in here that we have not beeped. If you prefer a beeped version of our program, you can hear that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. The story was put together by Emily Shaw with original music by Mural Van Dyke and Anthony Barilla. How you doing? Jesus, I haven't heard from you in a while. How you been? <laughs> Actually, I'm with this girl, Emily, right now that's interviewing me. She's a fucking college kid or something. She's, <laughs> she's interviewing me. I don't know. She does a radio thing or something and she saw... I have a hat in Craigslist about getting rid of the swastika tattoo I got. She wanted to know about that, so now she's all curious about prison. 24. I'm not doing that. What the fuck is wrong with you? I'm taking her home right now. to turn the radio off because it's going to be distracting. And eventually after you smoke, if we could close the window. Jesus Christ. Is this going to be a trying experience? Uh, Only if you make it a trying experience. I think it should be relatively painless. Relatively painless. Alrighty. Start with the basics. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm Bruce Roderick. From Centerville. I was born in Provincetown, 1951, to Portuguese parents. And I moved to Yarmouth in 1964. And what else? Keep going. Just start from the top. What am I, what do you want me to say? I don't know. I thought you were here to look at my tattoo. I have a small swastika tattoo on my left arm that I wish to have it covered up. I cannot afford to pay what a tattoo shop is charging. It is only in a one square inch area. Please, if you do tats on your own, call me or text me. I just want it covered up, blacked out, nothing fancy. I did it when I was young and I want it off. started using drugs when I was 15. Some of kids coming down from New York and Provincetown, they'd be in little rich kids' private schools where they were already using drugs and they'd bring that shit down. And the town kids would get around them and we'd start using it, sniffing glue, smoking pot, taking pills, and then it just progressed to other things. I started using heroin, which I liked more than anything, and I just continued. Since that day, I've always done heroin. I don't do anything else. I dropped out of school when I was 16, worked a little bit. Then I started getting in trouble and was a runaway. lived in the streets of Boston and started going to prison when I was 17. 
What was that for? That was for a shooting and selling drugs. Summer uh, 69, I believe, 69, yeah. I was going to go to Woodstock. I got arrested that weekend. I received three years sentence. I made parole. I was out for a month. I went back in. And then I started... I started robbing drug dealers. Wow. What was robbing drug dealers like? How'd you do that? I would knock on a door. They would open the door. I'd put a gun in their face, go into the house, and take the drugs. Have you ever killed anyone? <clears throat> no. Why would I sit here and admit to something like that anyway? If I did. Yeah, good question. Right? I, um, I was robbing drug dealers, and that was my career right up till 1985 when I went into a house. I went into a house in Centerville, and it was, uh, police were in the house. They posed as drug dealers, and there was a confrontation in the house. I ended up going to prison for, uh, I spent 12 years in jail on that one. Went back in again for selling heroin. We got out, went back in again for selling heroin. And now I just got out again. Now here I am. I've been out two years, almost two years. This is the longest that I've been out here free and haven't been using. What's prison like? What's it like? Prison is... Very, there's racial lines. There's lines. You have to hang with your own kind. And if you let a black or a Spanish or somebody that's not of your race take advantage of you sexually or whatever, then you become a punk, I guess. Really awesome gun, which means anybody can take whatever they want from you because you didn't stick up for yourself. Your fair game. I think I even got some pictures here. Pictures from prison? Yeah, I got a couple, I think. That's me when I was younger. That's a jailbird. It's my niece, my niece. That's me in a bar in Boston. Where's the jail pictures at? That's my father. That's me and my mother's house. My parents were devastated. No one in my family's ever gotten in trouble before, but they always stuck by me. Do you think your parents should have practiced tougher love, or what? Beat me more? That's <laughs> well, tough love. They didn't say here, here. Here's twenty bucks. Go get high. No. My father was disgusted by my behavior. My mother was heartbroken. That was my mother's favorite. Of course not. They didn't want me to do the things I did. Well, you know, what are you going to do? You don't think of nothing else but yourself when you're doing those things you do. This is Norfolk Prison here. That's me there. 
That's one of my good friends. He's a dolphin. This guy I hung around with for like 10 years, right? And he was like my best friend, and I didn't know he was in for rape. And that's prison. Whoa. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to your tattoo yet. I've just been so enthralled. That's a tattoo. See it? It's not even that big. You can barely even see it. Yeah, I got it done around 1986, 87. It was supposed to have, like, white power. I was covering up a question mark I had right there when I was a kid. And this guy, Willie the Rat, he did a lot of my tattoos. And um, I think he was in my cell doing a tattoo for somebody else. And I had some biker book or something. And I saw that tattoo, and I asked Willie if he could cover the question mark up with that. And I put that on. And now I want this covered up. That's all I want is that blacked out. Did your buddies get swastikas as well? Oh, yeah. Most of the white guys back then had swastikas. Swastikas, uh, SWP, Supreme White Power, uh, FTW. A lot of them got that. They used to be on the big one, Fuck the World. Did it, the swastika represent Nazi ideas in prison? No, it doesn't represent nothing. It's just a fucking tattoo. I don't have anything against Jewish people. But that symbol, the swastika, says otherwise, right? The swastika was just a symbol, period. What does it mean to you? I like the way it looks. I used to have a big flag. Above my wall, I had a big swastika flag. I gave it to my roommate up in Revere before I moved out. But you know that it carries so many connotations. That's exactly why I'm taking it off my own. I read an obituary about this Jewish guy that was in the camps. And this guy worked in the uh, gas chambers, the showers. They would take the bodies out of the shower and bring them to be burned. This guy, that was his job. That's why he was able to survive. He was in there towards the end of the war. But anyway, he just died recently. And in his obituary, it said he had written this book. And um, I read the book. And then I just didn't want the tattoo anymore. Because it's a very offensive thing. And I am getting older. I don't want to die and have God see that on my arm. spent over 30 years in prison. I'd like to have those years back. I never had any kids. I, uh, my mother and father were both dead. They never saw me uh, succeed in nothing. Uh, I'm 61, I don't have shit for money. You know, all of a sudden, I woke up and I was 60 years old. It just flew by, the time flew right by. All behind drugs. That's it. Are we done? Yeah, we are. We are? <laughs> Basically, yeah. I'm sorry. But where are you going? Where do you have to go? I'll give you a ride, I'm saying. Okay. This oh, interview is over. I'm sorry. That's okay. Did it go all right? Yeah. We got to defrost. All right. What did you think, that dirty racist? I didn't know. What do you think now? Still that dirty racist? You still got that fucking thing on? 
Yeah. <laughs> I do. Right on. All right, you gotta get out of here. Okay, I've thanks. My <laughs> patience will thin. Thanks, Bruce. Have fun. Take care. You better say I'm a nice fucking guy in this. Alrighty, thank you so much. What's up, Shot Dog? Why the fuck didn't you go pick up Charlie that day? He is so fucking pissed. story by Emily Shaw. It's one of the very first radio stories she's ever made. She created it at something called the Transom Story Workshop, which takes people who have never done radio. In eight weeks, it trains them to make stories in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. You can Google Transom Story Workshop if you're curious about that. The music was created for the story by Miro Van Dyke and Anthony Barilla from the band Miro and Tony. You can find other music of theirs on SoundCloud, Miro and Tony. We first aired this story back in 2014. Since then, Bruce found somebody to black out his tattoo. Coming up, a story with original songs by Stephen Merritt. I'll explain what that's about after the break. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, our theme, of course. Regrets, I've had a few. That's right, stories of regret. We've arrived at Act Two of our show, Act Two. This is just as hard for me as it is for you. One of the most basic parts of being a parent is trying to sort through a bunch of options and figure out what is going to be best for your kids. Everything from what foods they should eat to where you're going to live so they'll have decent schools. This next story is about a father trying to do that, trying to figure out what's best for his children and having some regrets about how things worked out. His name is Will Ream, and the choices uh, Will has had to make have been pretty dramatic ones. And to tell a story, we're going to try something that we have never attempted before. We asked a songwriter, a great songwriter, Stephen Merritt from the band The Magnetic Fields and other bands also, to collaborate with us. And mostly, as you'll hear, Stephen has composed music that's going to run underneath the narration and the quotes like we always have in our stories, like the music that we had written for Act One of our show today. Though in a couple of places, and really it's just a few places, Stephen wrote songs, like real songs with words that'll sing. I'll sing something that sounds like this. So during the story that you're about to hear, when Stephen is singing, he's going to be singing things that the dad in the story, Will Ream, actually said. The lyrics are all verbatim quotes, or you know, they're as close to it as Stephen could get within the structure of a song. One of our producers, Miki Meek, first encountered Will Ream when Will Ream had just left everything he had ever known. He had grown up in this incredibly isolated town called Colorado City, in the deserts of northern Arizona. He'd been raised inside this religious group there, a fundamentalist group, a whole community of people that had split off from the mainstream Mormon church over a century ago. 
and has lived out there in Colorado City in the desert since. So here is the story. Here's Mickey. So when I first met Will in 2012, he was living in a rundown house outside of Salt Lake City, sleeping on a mattress on the floor and just trying to figure out how to start his life over. He wasn't even sure how he'd gotten to this point. Because three years earlier, he was a married man living in Colorado City. He and his wife had four girls and a little boy, and they were surrounded by family and people he'd gone to church with his whole life. He was happy. But then things started getting strange at church. Church leaders went into this weird paranoid mode, seeing outside threats everywhere and in everything. And they began to ask Will and some other men to do all sorts of stuff they hadn't asked for before. The church leadership had people it wanted to intimidate. These were former church members and people who were questioning them. So they'd send Will and these other guys from church out in the middle of the night to vandalize these people's stuff, disable farm equipment, change locks on gates. And the church told Will and the other men, you can't tell your wives. My gut reaction was, if, if I am married to her, then we are supposed to be as one. So why am I supposed to keep secrets from her? Because it seems to me like that would be detrimental to our relationship. Did you ask that? Did you feel like you could ask that? I couldn't ask that. That's just not something that was done? No, that wasn't something we did. Will says he felt like he and his wife had a good marriage, that they were close. And now, here he was, leaving in the middle of the night and staying out for hours and not telling her why. Church leaders told Will, you don't owe her an explanation. If she wants answers, she should pray harder. Even for a young religious wife, who was used to a man being the final word, this was too much. It dragged on for almost a year. She would say, like, what were you guys doing last night, you know? And I would say, I can't tell you. Or a man doesn't need to tell his wife everything, you know? And I would use that line that they told me, which now, to, even just now when I said it, it, it makes me go tense. That's something that, that hurts, that I was that stupid. And there were quite a few nights where I remember she would... She would be really distraught, and she would go into the bathroom, into the shower, and just weep it out. And I would turn my back on her <laughs> and force myself to, to not feel. If there's anything I could ever do to take that back, I would have. But I drove her to a, a place where she was very depressed and very hurt because she loved me with all her heart. If I had known at that point what I was choosing at that point, if I was choosing her or the church, you know, I would have chosen her. But I didn't even realize that was a really that big of a problem at that point. One day Will came home from work, and his wife was gone. She left him a note saying she needed to think. He tried to work it out with her for a year and a half after that. She even moved back home for a while. But in the end, Will says she wanted nothing to do with their old life. She didn't want to be a mom or a wife. And she checked out on Will and their five kids. She wouldn't talk to me for this story. But Will says they had gotten married when she was 15. So when she left him, she was still in her early 20s. She had never experienced anything outside the church. Now she started seeing other men and drinking. Will was devastated and he resented the church for causing their breakup. And things were getting even weirder at church. Will's particular branch of fundamentalist Mormonism is headed by the prophet Warren Jeffs. You may have heard of him. 
He got investigated in Utah, Arizona, and Texas for sexual assault and marrying underage girls. He was sentenced to life in prison. Will and the other followers were told if they had enough faith, God would release Jeffs from prison. And so to test their faith, lots of strange new rules came down. Don't eat sugar, only wear homemade clothing, and it can't be the color red. Will remembers one Sunday, a new set of rules came down, specifically aimed at everyone's kids. They talked about how the kids weren't supposed to play. I think that was probably one of the biggest things for me, is they weren't supposed to play just to have fun anymore. They were asking the people to get rid of their children's toys and uh, to not allow them to ride their bicycles. They basically were saying that, that we needed to sacrifice everything that meant anything to us. Everything from our desires to our physical belongings to our homes to our families to everything we needed to be willing to sacrifice everything for the good of the prophet. I just remember leaving that place feeling like shit thinking, is this really what I want? You know, is this really what I want for my kids? Will got desperate. He reached out to his bishop at church. I I told him, I says, I need some help here. I'm losing it. And he just says, you need to pray more. You need to get over it. That's all he said. You need to pray more. And I just, I thought about that. And I thought, you're turning into what I used, or you're giving me what I used to give my wife. You know, and... There was no life left in me at that point. I would walk at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, all through the night, just pace, walk up in the canyons, walk just everywhere, just trying to get some kind of clarity. I had this big blank sheet of paper Where I was going to write my reasons to live or why not end it all today? And kids was the only reason I could give. I felt betrayed by my religion and by the only person I had ever loved and opened up to. You bet I felt betrayed. They all said pray. Yeah, well, I prayed I've had the knife sitting in front of me I've had the pills sitting in front of me And I've been sitting right up on the cliff's edge With one foot dangling off the ledge And kids was the only reason I could give They all said pray Yeah, well, I prayed When the church told kids they weren't allowed to play, that was the last straw for Will. He'd already lost his wife, and now his whole life was about trying to make things okay for his kids again. He had a radical thought. Maybe they just had to get out and start over. So on his 33rd birthday, Will loaded his kids into a van, and they headed north. Once they got 20 miles away, he stopped the car and explained to his kids what he was doing. I says, we're going we're gonna to go and make a life for ourselves somewhere else. I asked them if they were, you know, how they felt about that. And they all said that they wanted to, to come and build a new life. Were you scared at all at that time? You know, did you doubt yourself at all? I wondered. Oh, yeah. I really did. I, w- I wondered if, 
you know, we were all going to be destroyed tomorrow and I screwed up. You know, maybe a week from now. But it actually felt like that. Hope. It was genuine hope for the first time in a long time that, that I could give them another shot at life. It's like taking a breath of air after you've had your head underwater, you know? Will ended up way north, in a city called Ogden, not far from Salt Lake. He and his kids moved into a small apartment and started living among regular people for the first time. Doing stuff regular people do, like going to the movies. We went and saw Despicable Me, and it was in 3D. And it was the first movie they'd ever seen in their life. And uh, I was watching him jump, bouncing in their seats and giggling and laughing and, and jumping backwards when it looked like stuff was coming out of the screen. And, I mean, it just... I watched them more than I watched the movie. And I got to see them be genuinely happy and not get put in check. And to just be a child. Um, it was amazing. The four girls all cut their hair. They painted their nails and got their ears pierced. All of that was forbidden back where they used to live. And for the first time in their lives, they played with kids who weren't fundamentalists. Back in their old lives, they had names for people like that. Gentiles, apostates, wicked. Well, we were at, the, uh, we were at a park in Ogden one time, and uh, they were playing on the swings, and there were some other children there. And one of the other children's mother came up, you know, and was helping them and stuff. And I came walking up, and my oldest daughter was like, Dad, you know, the wicked people are pretty nice. And the other lady just glared at me. And I was just like, mm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I, I didn't really know what to say. But You're like shrugging your shoulder. Yeah, I, I didn't really know what to say. And I just says, hon, these people aren't wicked. They're just like us. You know, and, and they would ask me all of the time, so are we, in, are we apostates now? Are we Gentiles now? So they were concerned about being able to go to heaven. Like you'd hear them talking about it between themselves. They would be like, we went to a movie, and movies are wicked, so we're wicked people. And one of the other ones would say, no, we're not wicked people. That was fun. Dad said it was okay. not associate with colored people but in Ogden it's okay these two kids who spoke Swahili we all had this barbecue and my girls loved them it was just like night and day seeing my kids play back in Colorado City Wearing shorts is like rebelling before God But in Ogden they don't care So we wore just what we wanted Girls went shopping, skirts and dresses And played music We could never do that there Everyone would stare We couldn't wear red Maybe that's what Jesus would wear We couldn't wear anything bought in a store We couldn't eat sugar, play games The kids couldn't have toys Or do anything fun anymore 
But in Ogden we had parties And the older kids went on a roller coaster And they went and got their hair done They had a good summer, a fun summer. But when fall came, it was like reality hit. The kids were going to public school for the first time in their lives. They'd been homeschooled before that. And Will decided to go to school, too. He only had an eighth-grade education, so he got his GED and then enrolled as a freshman at the local college. It was incredibly tough for Will, trying to hold everything together, with five kids by himself. When he left the restrictions of their old life, he also left behind all the love and support that came with it. For the first time in Will's life, he had no family members, no church members, nobody to come over and watch his kids for a night, or to bring a meal. He'd been living in this tightly knit, small town, where everybody looked out for each other, where everybody had known him since he was a kid. And now he was far away, and they'd all completely cut him off. One of his sisters called him up one day, just to tell him that she'd never talk to him again. Will got increasingly overwhelmed. He couldn't see how things were going to work out. He had no long-term plan for how to support himself and these five children. They were living off his savings because he was in school. All his energy had gone into figuring out how to get out. And they got out. But now what? One day in class, Will lost it. Just something snapped. I, I just, I broke down. I started weeping and I couldn't stop. <laughs> it was really hard and incredibly lonely. When you're... 33 years old to learn how to live again. To basically start from square one. Will went home and curled up on the couch for three or four hours, crying. Then he went and picked up his kids from school. And then I started making dinner, and then I kind of, I was like I was kind of out of it, you know. And and when I came back to it, I just started kind of looking around, and I asked my oldest daughter, did you check on the food in the oven and she's like, uh, we already ate, Dad. I looked around, and my oldest daughter had gotten the dinner out of the oven and served the children and fed them, and they were done, and she'd cleared the dishes off the table, and they were sitting in the sink. And I realized it was three hours later. It freaked me out. Will thinks that for three hours, he was just standing in one spot in the kitchen as his kids walked around him and served themselves dinner. In those three hours, Will could have set fire to the casserole or the apartment, a lot could have gone wrong. Will's only goal at this point in his life was to be a good dad to these kids. Now he felt like he was putting them in real danger. His five kids were all young. The oldest was 11, and the youngest was four. I am not stable, he thought. So Will started talking to some counselors. They told him that his situation was serious. He needed to let someone help him care for his kids. So he started looking for help, and within a week, Will's friends families he was just getting to know, agreed to let his kids live with them, just for a little while, just until Will got back on his feet. Will tried to explain this to his kids, that he wasn't doing so well, that he needed someone to help with them. And then his 11-year-old piped up. And that's when she says, well, I can, Dad, you know, and it just made me feel worse. And I just told her, I says, I can't allow you to do that. I can't. I said, you need to be a kid. They didn't understand. I mean, they're just like, well, well, but, you know, a week, do we get to come home next weekend? Do we, you know, I mean, and it was hard because they, I mean, I couldn't give them a period of time. I mean, I didn't know. And I was just hoping that 
somehow, some way that I would uh, just grow back, you know, that I would be able to, that I would be able to stand up and take care of it. That's not what happened, though. What was supposed to be temporary turned into two years. That's when I first talked to Will. He was living in a house with a beat-up couch and a mattress, not a lot more, and doing pretty badly. He dropped out of school and taken a construction job to support the family, but it just wasn't enough. He'd spiraled into a depression where all he could do was work and sleep. This is from that first interview. I'll still have some pretty bad lows, some pretty bad days sometimes, where I just kind of need to just kind of disappear into the ether and think about things. And I just, it's really hard, really hard for me to deal with. I feel like I've failed, kind of, um, where I'm not taking care of my kids anymore, my family's not together anymore, you know, stuff like that. It's feels like I've had to admit failure, which which is hard, but I always identified myself as as their dad. <laughs> but hopefully, uh, I can get into a place where. I'd really like to be dad again. His daughters were only 20 minutes away, but it was hard for Will to see them. He'd go over and read books and play games with them. And then when he had to leave, they'd always ask, when do we get to come home? Will never had an answer for them. His life was still a mess. And so he'd drive away, feeling totally wrecked that he'd let them down. Will started going to see them less often, because it was so painful. And because it seemed like the more he stayed away, the better they did. Seeing him raised upsetting questions. And when he stayed away, they thrived, settled into their new lives, and made friends. They played soccer, which the girls never would have done back in their old community in Colorado City. They got to be kids. And so Will came to a hard, awful conclusion— he needed to let them move on, without the question of coming home always hanging over their heads. And so after they'd been living with their new families for two years, Will waived his parental rights. He let the families adopt his kids. Giving up your kids, you gave them a better life. But it didn't necessarily do that exact thing for you. It didn't do that exact thing for me. But that's okay. I'm fine with that. Because they have what I wanted them to have now. They have what I couldn't give them otherwise. Will had done what he originally wanted to do when he left Colorado City. He'd given his kids a better life. The girl's adopted mom told me that his daughters now see that's what he intended, that he tried to do what was best for them, though it took them a while to see it that way. It's gotten easier for Will to visit his kids and Skype with them. He used to keep all their photos boxed up, It was too hard to look at them. But now his bedroom shelves are lined with their pictures. The kids' adopted families live farther away now. That's hard. His son is now in southern Utah, and his four daughters are in another state. And so Will took a job driving oil trucks in Texas and North Dakota. The pay was better, and he no longer had a reason to stick around Salt Lake full-time. At each point since leaving Colorado City, Will made what seemed like the best choice for his family. But as a result... He doesn't have a family anymore. You know, I, I miss them. All day, every day. They, they've never left my mind. 
Think about the way they used to laugh, their little oddities, the weird little things they would say, the way they would walk, when they learned to walk, how long their mom was in labor with them, the way they looked when they were born. If you could somehow go back in time, would you? Um, if I could go back and have everything that I've experienced been removed from my plate and just drop straight back into that, into the same mindset, I might. It was a good life. I refer to that point in my life as having everything, back when I had everything. And that was the pinnacle of my life. That was when everything made sense, and I had everything I ever wanted. Songs and scoring by Stephen Merritt with Sam Duvall on cello and glockenspiel, Pinky Weitzman on viola, engineering by Charles Newman. Mickey Meek reported the story. Mickey is one of the producers of our show. Our program is produced today by Hannah Jaffe Walt with Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Miki Meek, John Clement Hevar, Brian Reed, Reverend Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. The senior producer for today's show is Julie Snyder. Our editor is Joe Lovell. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Production help from Lily Sullivan. Seth Lind is our director of operations. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergeson is our business operation manager. Elna Baker scouts stories for the show. Kimberly Henderson is our office coordinator. Research help from Michelle Harris, Christopher Sotala, and Julie Beer. Music help today from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to Shannon Price, Claudia Gonson, Katie Lazarus, Tim Manley, Hannah Rosen, and Leslie Goshko. In the year since we first ran our story about Will Ream, the guy in the last act, he's now back in Salt Lake working a construction job. He says they're all doing well. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. You know who puts baby in a corner? 
He is the one who put baby in a corner. Like he always says. Like I hated that baby. And in my mind, I thought like, the feeling's mutual. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. I wonder who's kissing her now. I wonder who's teaching her how. I wonder who's looking right smack in her eyes. Oh, breathing sighs and telling lies. Well, I wonder who's buying the wine for the lips that I used to call mine. Well, I wonder if she ever tells him of me. I wonder who's kissing him now. I used to call mine